Hosea is a stunning, if difficult, prophetic book set within a time of severe political turmoil in 8th century Israel. Kings are dying, alliances are being formed, a showdown with the Assyrian Empire is imminent, and within this historical reality, the people of Israel have become rebellious and unfaithful. They have even included worship of other gods into their normal routines. All of this informs the well-known image of Hosea's marriage to an unfaithful wife, Gomer, and the birth of their kids. Much like his own family, the book of Hosea tells a one-sided love story of a God who, despite all evidence to the contrary, will not give up on his people. Join us as we explore the depth and radical faithfulness of a God who won't let go in the book of Hosea. Okay, so we're going to be jumping right in. We'll be looking at the book of Hosea. We're going to move ahead a few chapters to Hosea chapter 11, and you'll see why hopefully in a bit. This is Hosea chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. It says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more I called them, the further they went from me. They kept sacrificing to the Baals, and they burned incense to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with bands of human kindness, with cords of love. I treated them like those who lift infants to their cheeks. I bent down to them and fed them. They will return to the land of Egypt, and Assyria will be their king. Because they have refused to return to me, the sword will strike wildly in their cities. It will consume the bars of their gates and will take everything because of their schemes. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they cry out to the Most High, he will not raise them up. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like Admah? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart winces within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I won't act on the heat of my anger. I won't return to destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a human being the Holy One in your midst. I won't come in harsh judgment. They will walk after the Lord who roars like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come trembling like a bird and like a dove from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, says the Lord. The word of God for the people of God. The book of Hosea is well known for its many images, whether they are lived or just literary in nature. These images help us to understand the character of God. The most prominent in our culture's collective memory is no doubt the prophetic sign act of Hosea's marriage to Gomer. She is a woman of questionable morality and wavering religious and relational commitments. He is a prophet called by God to marry just such a woman. Sadly, we don't know nearly any details of their marriage. We don't know beyond broad generalities what their life was like at home. We are not privy to any of their dinnertime conversations. We don't hear how either of them processed their past or even their present, really. We don't know how or if their love grew for one another over time. We never hear directly from Gomer in the book of Hosea what she was thinking or what she was feeling or how she was processing this relationship that she has with Hosea. We don't see how they raised their kids. We know that they have three of them, but we don't know 
who was the disciplinarian. We don't know who tucked them in at night. We don't know who the kids called for when they were restless of sleep. We don't know how these kids turned out. We can imagine with such jacked up names, they probably didn't do too well. The names being Jezreel and not pitied or not compassioned and not my people is setting these kids up in a pretty, pretty terrible trajectory. But we do know that Hosea and Gomer's relationship was meant to provide a poignant and lasting image to the people of God's relationship with Israel. Whatever Gomer's character is meant to represent in chapter one, whatever her harlotry consisted of, we know that she served as an image for the people and Hosea, an image for God. Here's the point. God, throughout Israel's history, experienced infidelity and faithlessness at the hand of his covenant partner. Like Hosea in chapter three, God had also gone after Israel to bring her back, to restore the relationship, to absorb her wrongdoing, to provide her with freedom, to demonstrate his commitment and his unwillingness to let her go. And this is what we have given ourselves over the last few weeks of study to focus on. And in many cases, this is the totality of what people know of the book of Hosea, a prophet who is called to marry a woman of harlotry, perhaps even knowing that they have a few kids and perhaps knowing that at some point Gomer leaves and Hosea goes and gets her and brings her home. But despite the fact that this image gets pride of place, there are other metaphors and images that appear in the book of Hosea. These are varied, and in the words of an Old Testament scholar named Terence Fretheim, they are often audacious and bizarre. For example, in Hosea 5.12, we hear that God is like maggots or pus, or depending on how you translate these terms, he might be like moths or rot or rottenness or a wasting disease. He is compared to a lion, a leopard, and a bear in chapters 11 and 13. He is compared to dew in chapter 14 and cypress in chapter 14. In parallel fashion, Fretheim writes, the images for the people of Israel used by God are completely excessive. Israel is like a stubborn heifer, dew that disappears early, an overheated oven, a cake not turned, a silly and senseless dove, a useless vessel, wild grapes, a fruitless tree, wood chips on roiling waters, swirling chaff, and smoke. As we have noted before, all of these diverse images reveal not an aloof or detached or even a disinterested God, but a God who feels a God who is emotionally attached to his people, a God of pathos, as that great Jewish scholar Abraham Joshua Heschel would say. It is a God, if you don't mind me going this far, a God who risks it all for his people. God is affected by his people's actions and his language and his own responses reflect that. In a few weeks, Kate and I will celebrate our 10th anniversary. Yeah, thanks. In fact, a couple of days ago, Facebook reminded us to the fact that it was the 11-year anniversary of our very first dance together. Don't mind Kate's crazy eyes in this picture. We didn't have good technology that long ago. 
This dance was pretty scandalous at the time. Nobody knew that we were interested in one another, but yet here we are on the dance floor. Uh, Facebook also reminded me that there was two comments that went along with this uh, photo as it was posted. I don't know if it was me that posted it or, or, or what, but one was our very own Laura Rogers who said, I like Kate, she's a keeper. And here we are. The other was one of the students in the college ministry that I was leading at the time, and she said, geez, Josh, loosen up a bit. It's funny, though, the next picture in this album uh, is this one here. Come on. I was hoping for a little bit of a response there, wanting me to loosen up a little bit here. Um, That was my patented pose back in the day. Uh, Just to be clear, though, it was a dry wedding. So there was no alcohol involved in the taking of this picture. You guys, you guys feeling okay today? Come on now. I don't want to belabor the point, but for nearly all of us, relationships provide an accessible image of feeling, of emotional investment, of pathos, of risk. Whether you've been married to someone for 10 or 20 plus years, or you have experienced heartbreak in some of your relationships and all that goes along with that, Or perhaps the closest that you have come is just that butterfly feeling when that person walks in the door. Whatever the case, most of us, I believe, get it. We can empathize with some of the things that are being talked about here in the book of Hosea. The feelings, the emotions, the risk of relationships. Now to be clear, you or I probably have never said to anyone that I will be like maggots or pus to you. You may have wanted to say that or thought it. Uh, Maybe you have never experienced the destruction of infidelity, but I'm at least certain that we have seen it. We have observed it. We have maybe even felt its long-reaching effects. This is the image that is painted throughout the book of Hosea. And as a result, we as readers are confronted with powerful images that remind us of God's investment in Israel and God's investment in us. I just want to pause there for a moment and allow a space to think through that because I think for many of us, when we think about the divine, the divine resides somewhere up there and maybe or maybe not he or she or it cares about us. But throughout the Old Testament, even in some of these weighty prophetic books, we get these images of a God who is so invested in his people. In Hosea chapter 11, the text that we looked at earlier, we move beyond marital imagery to the familial imagery. Here the prophet conveys God not as a scorned and stilted lover, but as a parent. The chapter begins in this way. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. This passage looks back to a foundational moment in Israel's history, the exodus from Egypt. In fact, the only other place in the Old Testament where this language, this sonship language is used specifically of Israel is in Exodus chapter 4, where God describes Israel as his firstborn son. And as the firstborn son, Israel was loved. And by the love of God, Israel in the Exodus account was led out of bondage into freedom, out of oppression and into liberty, out of slavery and into service. The parent-child relationship, however, is not devoid of emotional investment. It's not devoid of feelings and pathos and risk. My mom, for example, I'm 36 years old and my mom still texts me whenever I go out of town just to make sure that I got there okay. 
For you parents in the room with teenagers, I'm not excited about this moment in our parental journey because just thinking about them going out and being involved or invested in different things is difficult. Allowing them to go involves risk. Now, Kate and I's children are still young at this point. Abe is on the right and Jude is on the left. They're still pretty little. Uh, But even in the small stuff, Kate and I feel the risk that's involved in relationship. This one's unique to me, I think, but Abe goes here to Asbury for preschool on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And on Wednesdays, he stays after school to play 30 minutes of soccer with some of his classmates. And it's all I can do to not watch him out there on the field. For some reason, I just get, I'm too attached, I'm too invested. I want Abe to dominate on the soccer field, for one, even though he's four years old. I want him to take control and to own those little children. But the other, I just don't want to see him struggle. I don't want to see him, I don't know what it is, but there's just a risk that's involved. And usually I just pull into the parking lot and keep my head down. And sometimes towards the end of the season, I was able to walk out and to see what he was doing. For me, I, don't, I think that's very unique to me. If anybody's ever come to a kickball game, you know that I'm way too invested in the team and in our success. And I want to try to keep that from A, but at the same time, I want him to, to love whatever it is that he's doing and to be safe and to be successful. I do have another story, though, of of risk where um, Abe and Jude went to Coco's. We had a group from TRP go to Coco's, which is a parent's worst nightmare. It was raining, and there was like a 1,000 children there running around creating havoc. And Coco's is basically an indoor play arena with all sorts of stuff that kids can either do or not do. And there was something that Jude found that he could climb on. So he's climbing up on this little play set, and there was a boy on a different section who was taking some pads and blocking, barricading Jude from going any further in this play area. So this one kid's down here not allowing Jude to go through the play set. And we're seeing this happen. Kate and I are watching this. And we say to Abe, hey, Abe, go help your brother out. So Abe marches himself over there, stands in front of this boy who is taking these pads and and not allowing Jude, his brother, to go any further. And he says, hey, man, that's my brother. Let him go. And he starts pushing the pads out of the way, clearing room for his brother, Jude. And Kate and I are just sitting there watching this all unfold, not really knowing how to respond. However, the risk, this is silly, the risk of sending Abe to take care of his brother and seeing what happens and seeing the relationship that they have. And maybe even, I don't know if Kate was there. I imagine she has been at other points, just looking into the future and thinking about wedding days and soccer games and college experiences. And these two humans that have been brought into the world and entrusted into our care, at one point we will risk allowing them to leave and to succeed. As a pastor, I've been privileged to see many of you parents advocating and supporting your kids in many diverse aspects. I've seen you guys loving them and encouraging them. I've seen you supporting them. I've seen you be with them in all sorts of different situations. In some instances, you have had to put everything in your life on hold for the sake of your kids. In our very short five-year history as a church, some of this involves sitting in hospital waiting rooms, seeing parents grieve the loss of their children. Others of you who 
don't have biological kids of your own, which I think comprises most of us in the room here tonight, we see the way that you care for some of our own kids. If it takes a village, and I believe that it does, we are forming a really good one here at TRP. The text says that when Israel was a child, and it's interesting here that the term can really describe anyone from birth through adolescence. It's unclear as to the age of this image, but when Israel was a child, God loved him, and God's love brings about his freedom. But as the passage continues, we see how this might not necessarily yield the fruit that was intended. It says, the more I called them, the further they went from me. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and they burned incense to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim. This is a code word for the people of Israel. It was I who taught Israel to walk. I took them up in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with bands of human kindness, with cords of love. I treated them like those who lift infants to their cheeks. I bent down to them and fed them. Despite Israel's unfaithfulness, despite the fact that they keep going toward the Baals, despite the fact that they keep turning in rebellion from God, God continues to parent his child. The text says that he teaches them to walk, that he takes them up into his arms, that he leads them with bands of human kindness and cords of love. This probably refers to the strong familial bonds that are formed by good parenting. And I have to tell you, when I think about some of those things, there's images of people even in the room that I have seen parenting their children well. And I imagine this image like the parents of teenagers who actually talk to their kids, who go to their games and their plays and their art shows and whatever it is that they're into, parents who have earned the right to speak into their lives by listening, by being patient, by proving their commitment over time. And the fruit of this work is not always immediately evident. But in those moments when a kid says, hey, can I talk to you about something? or when they ask for your advice, or when they would rather have their friends come to your house than to go somewhere else. Those are the bands of human kindness and the cords of love that are being built even in our own families. And don't misunderstand me. This does not mean that your home becomes a free-for-all. It doesn't mean that you just let your kids do whatever it is that they want. It means that there is an active relationship between parent and child. Hosea then provides this stunning image where he says that God was to Israel like one who lifts infants to their cheeks. There's a lot of scholarly discussion on this verse, uh, verse 4 in chapter 11. There's a couple different ways that you could translate it. One has to do with uh, putting a yoke on an animal, and one has to do with snuggling a little baby. I think that the best translation decision that we could go at is continuing to see the parenting metaphor rather than switching it over at this point to talk about animals. And if we read it in this way, think about the image that is being created. God is like a parent who snuggles his baby. I don't know about you, but growing up, especially around the church, you have this image of God as, as the dictator in the sky or the great judge who is looking to vengefully punish you for your 
wrongdoings, but in this image we have a God who is a nursery worker who is holding these children and keeping them close enough so he can smell their beautiful smells. He bends down to feed them, the text says. And Fretheim interprets this passage in this way. He says, when the children needed comfort, God was there holding them close, assuring them that they would be all right. In bending down to them, God took on their stature. He assumed their size for the sake of assuring their future. It's almost as if God became one of them for their sake. In other words, there's an incarnational aspect to this passage. God has become everything that they and we need. And yet Israel and we continue at times to walk away. In the book of Hosea, Israel's constant and deliberate distrust and disobedience, it occasions their punishment. This text moves on where God isn't so invested in the lives of his people, but it continues to say they will return to the land of Egypt. This is a judgment text. This is God saying, if you want Egypt to be your political alliance and you don't want to trust me, then go. Assyria, it says, will be their king, the power of, of the world at the time, who would not be in alliance with them, but would lord themselves over them. It says, because they have refused to return to me, I will give them over to these people. The sword will strike wildly in their cities. It will consume the bars of their gates and will take everything because of their schemes. My people, it says, are bent on turning away from me. And though they cry out to the Most High, he will not raise them up. But even in this, God cannot fathom abandoning his children. In fact, the text says, and I don't know if you caught this, it says that God's heart winces at the thought that his people would be destroyed. God won't act, it says, in the heat of his anger. Instead, he will return these people to their homes. This passage is replete with images of the pathos of God, evidenced most beautifully in God as the parent who desperately loves his kids. I know we've got a mixed group in this room right now, and I don't know where you guys have come from, and I don't really pretend to. However, I do think that there's a couple of difficulties with a passage like this, and I think we might just narrow the room down to a certain segment of people. And if this is not you, apologies, I'll come back to get you at the end, but stick with me here for a moment. If I've learned anything in my few years of teaching the Bible, it's this, and this is still for everybody. Our understanding our experience, and perhaps more accurately, our acceptance of biblical images is shaped by our lived experience. And for some reason, the image of God as that good, good father has proven difficult for many to find edifying due to their own experience with their own earthly fathers. Pause. If that is not you... If you have had an image of a father who is consistent and caring and loving, say a prayer of thanks wherever you sit for that example. 
For some people, that has not been their story. And perhaps your story or a story of someone who's close enough to to affect you or to influence you is only the experience of judgment and not love, only punishment and not restoration, only suffering and no support, only correction and not encouragement. This experience has shaped you. And as a result, you may not be able to simply wrap your mind around a God who teaches you, who holds you, who feeds you, who snuggles you. Because that has not been part of your story. Our experiences, as varied as they are, they often become the filter through which we see the things of faith. Our fathers become the image of God. The church becomes the image of Jesus. And where we have felt hurt and harm, a lot of times we make a one-to-one correspondence. And the things that we sing and the things that we talk about, you might not be able to buy into because you have not experienced it. Dads, too, are not immune from this idea. In fact, as I've tried to mention that they might be one of the main players in this truth. They play a large role in how people see God. And while I do want to focus on dads today, the handful of us that are here, for some of you in the room, it might not be your experience with a, with a, a rough dad that causes some skepticism. It might not be your familial experience that dissuades you from accepting this image of a God who loves you and cares about you. It might be your spiritual experience where God has felt distant or aloof, where God has felt as though he is not invested or not present. It might be those moments when you pray and you feel and you hear nothing and you wonder if your words are just going up to the ceiling and back down or if someone is actually hearing those words. You might be in a worship experience where you look around and you see someone really getting it in your mind, whatever that means. Hands up, eyes closed, I don't know, whatever you think is really cool. You see that and you feel, you feel nothing and you think to yourself, I'm not there where they are. Something is broken. Something is missing. Sometimes those experiences cause a lot of damage for us as well. It might just be our collected cultural experience that teaches us that any form of punishment for wrongdoing, which we do see here in the book of Hosea, that that is unwarranted and unloving. And how dare God allow his people to get what they want? Whatever the reason that's guiding our suspicion, it seems that at at our specific moment in culture and time, the image of God as father, that God as good, good father is difficult for many to grasp. But in order to understand some of the implications of this passage, just like we do every week, I would encourage us to go back into the ancient Near Eastern context of this passage to see what is undergirding the use of this image. In a patriarchal society, God as father and Israel as son is just part of the ethos of the time. The image that's carried uh, has meaning because of the roles that are ascribed to each participant that is cited in this poetic image. For example, it's significant that Israel is not just son, but Israel is the firstborn son. Because in the ancient Near East, the firstborn son carries the family tradition, bears a special responsibility to maintaining it, and is thus granted a double portion of the family inheritance, according to Andrew Dearman. 
This image makes Israel's rejection of God even more meaningful because they have chosen to reject the family tradition. They have chosen, in a sense, to walk away from the double portion to go after whatever it is that they want to go after. But even in light of this, God cannot and will not abandon his kids. Rather, he fights for their inclusion. He remains present. He remains consistent. And eventually, they will return to him and he will restore them to their homes. If you or anyone in this room are troubled with the images of fatherhood, we should move to the meaning that is signified by its use. If your earthly father has not provided an image that is representative of the love of God in this passage, perhaps someone else has. Another father figure in your life, maybe your mom, maybe a loyal friend, perhaps you have seen glimpses of what this looks like in your life, and I would implore you to attach yourself to those images. This is the beauty of the Bible. The ways that we talk about God and the ways that we describe God are many and varied. Notice that on Father's Day, we talk about images of God as dad. On Mother's Day, we talk about images of God as mom. No one image or no one metaphor can be fully representative of who God is. His character cannot be contained by one image. I did find it interesting that one scholar, it was actually my doctoral supervisor, chose to read Hosea 11 through the lens of the unfailing nature of a mother's love. If you notice, there's no specification of God as father in this passage. Rather, the image is merely God as parent. John Golden Gay writes, whereas Yahweh speaks elsewhere as a betrayed husband in the book of Hosea, here he speaks as a betrayed mother. And whereas a husband can divorce his wife and send her away, a mother cannot divorce her children. No matter what they do, they remain her children. However we choose to read this passage, we are afforded an image that provides a small glimpse of the person of God. And I would imagine that today we are all in need of remembering that our God teaches us, that our God stoops down to feed us, that our God snuggles us. And while punishment might be involved, our God does not abandon or forsake us. In fact, in this passage, the love of God moves him or her toward reconciliation and restoration. Now, in conclusion, I want to take this passage in two directions very quickly. One, because today is Father's Day, I have a word for the biological dads in the room. I have a word for the people that will be one day become biological dads. I have the word, a word in it for the people in the room that are playing that role now through mentorship or through relationship, perhaps with a brother or a sister, perhaps you're just functioning as a dad type. I have a word for you guys today. Whatever sort of father figure you have had in your life, may it be said of us. May it be said of our community, may it be said of the church, that we are not dissimilar from the parenting image of God in Hosea 11. May we too 
learn to be emotionally invested and present, maybe even in spite of the rejection that we feel from our kids or from our mentees or from our brothers and sisters. May we lead our children with bands of human kindness and cords of love. May we strive to build those relationships where one day someone can come to us and say, hey, can I ask you a question? Can I get your take on something? Hey, will you pray with me? That we have fought so hard to create that atmosphere that they feel bonded with human kindness and love because of what we have invested. May we create an atmosphere of trust and respect and openness so that we can become the outliers who receive texts from our kids who actually want to talk to us or spend time with us. Now I'm taking some license with this passage, but may we also learn the words, I'm sorry, I love you, I'm proud of you. May we be holders and snugglers and feeders of our children. May our hearts wince at the pain of our kids and may we be restorative in the way that we love and as much as it depends on us, may we one day bring them home. Obviously, there's a lot of breakdowns whenever you create these analogies where we strive to be imitators of God, but my hope is that we learn to move beyond the cultural stereotypes of fatherhood, which are many and at times are disgusting. May we move beyond some of those stereotypes towards actually becoming an imitator of God who defies our cultural stereotypes in the way that he fathers his children. I'm going to close with this. Thinking about the lengths to which God is going for his people. Thinking about this image as a pre-Jesus type image, what we've seen is Israel denying and rejecting and pushing God aside and going in the ways that they want to go. And God says, no, you will not stiff arm me. I will wear you down and I will love you. Elizabeth Ochtemeyer writes this. She says, so in connection with this particular people, Israel, God's elected and loved nation, we hear that no sinfulness, no apostasy, no stubborn refusal to repent can finally overcome the love of God who wills to save them and to give them a new life in the future. Unmerited grace in Hosea rules the day. And then she connects the dots for us that I would like us to consider this evening. It is with the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that this message of love breaks out of Israel's particularity to encompass all people on the earth. Human sin does the Son of God to death. But this God of the Bible will not surrender his world to the effects of sin and death. Instead, his sovereign love raises Christ from the grave and wins its triumph over all wrong, offering to all persons everywhere a new life in his blessed future. Unmerited grace rules human history. The love of the Holy One of Israel will be the final word. Whatever your experience, 
whatever you have journeyed through that has brought about hurt in your life, whatever has made you jaded and callous to even the words that are coming out of my mouth, may you consider this evening that unmerited grace rules human history and the love of God can overpower your callousness. The love of God that invites you back home, that has not and will not give up on you, allows you a seat at the table as a son or as a daughter. And this loving parent, the one who in this image, and I believe we have seen also perhaps in our own lives, this loving God who teaches us and feeds us and snuggles us and wants desperately to be with us, this God who feels, this God who risks, this God who is emotionally involved in us is asking you to come back home today. I hope this evening, wherever you are and whatever you've gone through, that you would even just begin to consider that maybe when we sing that God is a good, good father, And maybe those aren't just words. Maybe that is an aspect of the truth. He might not look like the dad that you had, whether that is good or bad. But he is so much greater that we can't even encapsulate his goodness with the metaphors that we try to use to describe him. Tonight, I believe that you have the opportunity to join him, to follow him, to surrender yourself to him, and to accept the love that he so wants to give us. Thanks again for listening. We invite you to join us in Salisbury for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. Again, if you'd like more information, please visit our website at restoresby.org. See you next week.